Okay. I just don't want to lose any more <laughs> valuable conversation that we're having. It's going to be good to just debrief about the week and sort of feel like we're leaving with, I don't know, for myself, feel like I'm leaving with a little bit of reflection and more of a rounded out view of what I'm taking away this week. So I'm here today with Kelly Harding Woodruff. Um, We have spent the past week together at the Yale School of Management in the Women on Boards program. And I immediately felt your energy and I wanted to think it was just me, but I think um, you have that effect on people in general, just given the consensus of the other incredible women that we've had the distinct honor, I feel, of spending this week with. Early in the week, I really struggled with, I'm going to be very transparent, you already know this, um, some really serious anxiety, mainly stemming from imposter syndrome, which is ironic because that's the whole reason that I wanted to start this podcast. Um, So I was telling you briefly before I titled it Leadership Rx, which is a play on my healthcare background, and I am trying to focus on healthcare and more specifically women in healthcare um, and people who've struggled with lack of inclusivity in healthcare or lack of inclusivity in leadership more broadly. Um, and I, I like to think of it as like a prescription for leadership. I felt that I really didn't have that in my field. I didn't see a lot of nurses moving up in the ranks and the ones that did in that time, there wasn't even LinkedIn to stalk somebody and see, okay, how do I connect the dots here? How did they do X, Y, and Z? Um, And so I think that by speaking with other women who have something to contribute, whether it's in the healthcare space or, or just in general about their experience with leadership, hopefully we can be that voice for other people who may want to to learn more and um, I I just want to be very honest about how I felt being here. I think I was definitely the youngest person in our cohort and I'm proud to be here and feel so accomplished that I finished the program but you guys really rallied around me and reminded me that I do belong here and that a lot of you wish you had found yourselves in these rooms earlier in your career And I really needed to have this experience and really needed to feel that there were women out there um, who who wanted to support me and wanted to see me succeed. So I am rambling. (laughs) (laughs) So I will give you a minute to just, I know that this week we've done our elevator pitches (laughs) and our value propositions and our board bios a million times it feels like, but would you just give me a quick um, summary of your background and then how how you found yourself here at Women on Boards. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ashley. I want to start by saying I absolutely felt a kindred spirit between the two of us <laughs> on day one as well. And I also loved the way that you rallied our group together even before we stepped on here by creating the WhatsApp and being so interactive, taking proactive steps around dinner. Um, Your energy and your leadership, your vision was absolutely central 
to all of us getting a jump start on the bonding that we've done. And we have done some extraordinary bonding this week. <laughs> so thank you. And I'll go more into how extraordinary you are because I would like for that to be a part of the time that we share today. But briefly on myself. So I, I have background in public policy. Um, my first, I should start in undergrad. My undergrad was at Brown, which is still the love of my life to this day. <laughs> from the moment that I stepped on campus for I my I won't interview. tell your husband. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my cerebral life, we should say, as opposed to my physical life. But my cerebral lover is Brown. <laughs> so, so from the moment I stepped on campus for an interview to this day. And that has been... 30, almost 34 years. Next year will be 34 years. I'll have my 30th year anniversary, which was 30 years there since graduation. Um, so from there, I got a fellowship for the Woodrow Wilson Public Policy uh, Fellowship from Princeton, which allowed you to go to a number of different graduate schools and have amazing internship opportunities. So I interned with President Clinton, went to graduate school, and I was getting my master's in public policy, which I loved, but I found myself very attracted to the business school. So I had eight electives to take, and I took six of them there, and one of them was venture capital and entrepreneurship, and I fell in love with it. It was something about taking something from the stage of an idea of the person who brings it, and typically a brilliant entrepreneur who has a lot of brilliance in their area. So it might be someone in finance, it might be a baker, it might be an artist, it might be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Whatever their area is, they have a set of skills. What we see a lot in entrepreneurship is that people don't realize that there are gaps that they have. And if they do have the gaps, then they think somehow they're supposed to fill them. But the truth is that it's truly a team so to get coaches and to get a team around you. So my passion is surrounding entrepreneurs to be part of their team, to walk beside them as they roll out the vision that they have, which is part of their divine purpose in the world. And I've done that for the last 20 years. I've worked beside um, several people and started eight businesses. And now I'm looking to go into the board space. I do feel like for venture capital firms, private equity boards, um, I can bring a wealth of experience to those spaces. I also have gone back for my second master's degree in speech and language pathology. And that was inspired by my second born daughter who had speech. I found it absolutely magical to help someone communicate better from a child to the chief medical officer of a hospital. Communication is truly the bedrock of what unites us as people. And I find myself as a big hearted person wanting to spread love throughout the world. And one of the practical ways that you can do that is to help people better communicate. So going back for speech pathology, my last business is in communications. So that's the one that I'm in now. Regarding board space, um, I do feel like I have a great deal of experience in a few different areas, policy, business, and communication. There aren't a lot of spaces where I can bring my full self 
to have a 30,000 foot view, which is what I like to do to guide, consult, lead, Mm -hmm. as opposed to manage. And board spaces are among them, so. Okay, love that. So this week during one of our panel discussions, we had uh, one of my favorite sessions, which was where I saw Faye Waddleden on the screen. I have to confess, I did not know who she was before. Um, And when she introduced herself and she was first a nurse and then a midwife and I could immediately identify with that because she's a master's prepared nurse. Then she went on to say that she was the first African-American and the youngest person ever elected president of Planned Parenthood. I just had chills all over my body. Um, And in that moment, you raised your hand and shared a really powerful story about your grandmother to which Faye shared a story back about her grandmother which I would love to hear from you and and I also want to share how I was able to relate to that so my why which I've shared on this podcast before um, centers around my grandfather who had congestive heart failure and he was very sick for a very long time I think over the course of his life, he had four known heart attacks um, that that were um, recorded objectively in the hospital, um, but who knows how, how many other sort of minor episodes of damage that he had. Um, I have a very strong family history of heart failure, and I watched him suffer for years, um, and palliative care and um, support at home and keeping people out of the hospital and discussing goals of care just really wasn't something that existed at that time. He did eventually sign a do not resuscitate order, um, which in in that time frame for someone to, for a doctor to actually suggest that meant that you were pretty bad off. Like, Typically, I think this day and age, people um, will sign that a little earlier just due to their own personal choice and their own writing of their narrative. Um, He ultimately ended up in the emergency room in the middle of the night, uh, an emergency room that I went on to get my first job as a registered nurse in, um, and was coded CPR um, in front of my dad and my brother before the doctor ran in and said, he's a DNR, um, and everything stopped. And it was a traumatic experience, and it really, it it wasn't death with dignity. It wasn't any of, of the things that we strive to deliver to patients today. And it's a huge part in my reflection of my life and my career why I'm very passionate about palliative care, goals of care, and delivering care outside of the hospital setting and allowing patients to write their own story and, and honoring that. And so very different from the story that we'll hear from you, but just I had that nursing connection and then the family connection, and it was one of those moments for me where a lot of stars aligned. So. I'd love if you would share that moment, your perspectives on that moment with us. It was such a beautiful moment. It was filled with light and divinity. Mm-hmm. I have admired Faye Waddleton since I was a teenager. And 
she has an elegance and grace about her, which I find to be magnetic in and of itself. But her accomplishments are just extraordinary. And the bravery and courage that she had to lead in a space that is important to women of all races, backgrounds, and socioeconomic statuses. But particularly for me, as the great-great-granddaughter of a slave, this was a very relevant and important work that she's done. So to be before her and to have the opportunity to share my story, my great-grandmother was the first person who was not a slave in our family line. And I had the privilege of living with her until I was 25, which was extraordinary. And she raised my mother, which was also extraordinary um, because her mother was working and, and such and not available to be in that space. So my mother was raised by her grandmother, my great grandmother and mama, as we called her, was someone who was very vocal about the things that she was able to do and unable to do. So she was only, for instance, afforded a third grade education. And I remember her ending every conversation that we had by saying, Kelly, get your education. Your education is the key to freedom. And my proudest moment was having her come to my graduation at Brown where I was selected to be commencement speaker. And there were about 2,000 people in the church in front of me, but it was being simulcast to the green where there were tens of thousands of people because that's how Brown's graduation, they're so spectacularly fabulous. And so my great-grandmother was there in the audience and she stood up before I made the speech and I thanked her for all of her guidance and for standing on the shoulders of her and all of my ancestors. So she was raised in Virginia. She was raised um, in an area called Warsaw, which I think is close to Richmond. Yeah. And that's where the plantation was. And so somehow, it's a kind of an interesting historic story. Um, what was interesting about my great-great-grandfather was that he was a slave as a child. So we don't have a lot of written history in our country from that period of time. But some of the written history that we had suggested that slavery, in terms of people being taken from Africa, being brought to the United States, had ended before that. But there are several families who had family members who were brought really up until the last days of abolition. And so my great-grandfather was one of those people. He was brought at the very end. He was a child. And slavery ended in 1865, just a few years after he was brought. So the advantage to that was that he still had a lot of his um, constitution intact. Mm -hmm. And he hadn't really been broken down in the ways that other families who had people for many generations here. And that was something that my great-grandmother talked about a lot, that he had brought a lot of his African heritage, remarkably the pride of his culture, even having gone through the Middle Passage in a slave ship and brought here. So he ended up going on to actually own the plantation that we were slaves on. 
And I don't think it was a tremendously uncommon story. I know there's not a lot of historical detail about why or how these things happened, but we were one of the families who got the plantation. And so he had 78 acres of land and my great-grandmother grew up on that land. Um, it was common at that time for people to have many children to work the mm-hmm. land, you know, for other reasons as well, but one of them being. And so she was the oldest of nine children. So when I graduated and went through school, I've always thought about her wanting to honor her legacy, wanting to be a representative of my family, of my culture, of my people of African-American heritage, to um, go strong and, and do great things. So Faye Waddleton was particularly relevant because what happened in those periods of time When my great-grandmother was born in the late 1800s, she started to have her children. So she had five children, and the eldest was a girl who died early in life. Second-born was a son, and he did have one child. But the next three were girls. So two of my aunts um, ended up having abortions at that that time, which were not legal. They were not um, medically sound, mm-hmm. right, particularly for African-American cultures that didn't have maybe the socioeconomic resources or some of the trained doctors at that point. There was a lot of segregation. Mm-hmm. So two of my aunts, as a result of their abortions, could never have children. So my grandmother was the only one who could have children. And she had my mother, and then, of course, my mother had myself and my sister. So. Faye Waddleton was always someone who I saw as a pioneer in an area that was critically important for women of all races, but particularly my family. So to have the opportunity to meet her was a really emotional moment for me. Um, It was an authentic moment for me because I was aware that I was in a business space and a professional space, yet had the opportunity in the moment to share with her a bit of a personal story that was somewhat tender. Mm -hmm. And I took that opportunity and took that risk. And I was very grateful and overjoyed that not only did she receive it, but she in turn shared a story. And so it has gone into the top 10 best moments of my life. (laughs) (laughs) It It was an incredibly powerful moment. And I'm so glad you raised your hand and seized that moment because I feel like what I've learned about you just this week and all of your diverse experiences in your career and all the millions of dollars and all of the the big objective things you've done, to me that moment was a full circle of why you're really here and that's why you want to get in the boardroom as well. So I'm curious, you've, you've been involved in many different projects you've started you've been a part of starting eight companies among other things that you've done i'm curious as an executive mba student um, about the businesses that you've helped to start and just wondering um, if you could share maybe the most impactful to you personally, if that's even possible. (laughs) 
And if not, maybe the business that you think would be the most relevant to the the, the listeners of this podcast, which are women um, seeking to get involved in leadership specifically. Absolutely. So I have been privileged to work with seven entities, and the eighth was my own, but seven entities of people, entrepreneurs, who had a passion and a brilliance in an area of expertise. So my second business that I assisted with starting was a woman, a black woman, who was a real estate agent, and she herself had been a sharecropper. So that's a kind of interesting nod, right, to the why that we talked about, because what she said to me was, I think I was 24 when when we first met, and she said, you have an extraordinary work ethic, and I've never seen someone your age have that kind of work ethic. Well, she had an extraordinary work ethic too, although it was rooted in trauma, having picked cotton when she was three years old. So, um, yeah, so unfortunately, she saw that in me, and I think as a descendant of slaves, we had that commonality. So there was a common ground of trust. So she had extraordinary skill in real estate sales and connecting with people, but she hadn't had a lot of traditional education uh, because of her background. I've had a very formal, very long education from the time that I was a child in independent schools in New York City through the Ivy League, through the University of Michigan, Woodrow Wilson. So there were so many experiences that I had that were more more formal, of a more formal nature, that I think the pairing, the us together, was extraordinary. And because I understood, for instance, um, she had a temperament that could be fiery at times. <laughs> and so uh, my great-grandmother had that too. She was legendary in sometimes um, what we said. Sometimes she would say, throw China dishes when she was angry. She, she didn't have the benefit of Oprah or Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle teaching her to be in the moment or to how to handle anger. These are black women and black people who have had trauma, who are uh, representatives of what PTSD looks like in a person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that we say like, if so-and-so was a person, what would it look like? So I could identify with this woman because I had similar things in my background. So it didn't scare me away mm-hmm. from her. In fact, I felt very drawn to her as a result of our commonality, although we were separated by a few decades in age. Mm -hmm. So I was able to, first of all, stay with her, which I think is the first component of true business development, that if you have an entrepreneur who you're working with and you're helping walk by their side, that there's a commonality and a faithfulness to say that you'll dedicate yourself to walk with them through thick and thin, you know, on the journey to a certain point. Um, And so I think that that's where we began. So I started to observe her. And what I noticed about her was that she didn't have any systems in place. She just had her brilliance. And she was operating as a one-woman show, basically. 
but there were so many things that were being lost um, business opportunities and contacts and follow-throughs and follow-up things like that so back then we only had Microsoft suite and actually I knew that she wasn't very drawn to technology she was actually scared from, from technology a little bit you know nervous about it I shouldn't say scared I should say more nervous you know so I took that into consideration in the system that I first set up with her. And the first system that I set up with her was a binder system. And I just got a simple binder. I made um, a spreadsheet of contacts, things that she can enter. I put it by her phone and I said, anytime anybody calls, just record in this binder what they say and that way you won't lose the information. So with simple systems like that, I went onto Microsoft Suite, Excel, and Word, and you know created some background systems for her. And in just two years, she went from seven million in sales to over 20, 20 million in sales. And so it was a tremendous, tremendous um, opportunity to see how that shifted. So she had been working for a company, and at that point, I said to her, why don't you open your own business? You're such an incredible, powerful person. And and she said, well, I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, that happens to me in my area of expertise. I had taken the venture capital class at the University of Michigan at that point, entrepreneurship. I had started one business already, which was a nonprofit. So this was my second one. And I said, I'd be happy to help you. And so we spent the next few years establishing her own business which went on to be very successful. So that's my wow. favorite story. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So um, you also mentioned that at one point in your career, you interned for President Clinton. And um, with to whatever degree you're comfortable or able to share, I'm curious, um, one, how old you were at that time, uh, whether you had a family yet, and what your specific experience being a woman, especially given um, that presidency and what we all know about it, was like, and maybe some advice that you would give your younger self. Mm, those are such great questions. <laughs> I love them. So I had the honor of starting college at 17, which meant that I graduated at 21. So when I graduated at 21 and I was the recipient of the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, um, part of it were a lot of opportunities to work in areas of government and policy. So I interviewed with the executive branch and received the internship. It was extraordinary. I, I think that Policy is something that's resonant for my cells. Somehow making changes, again, at that 30,000 foot level, mm -hmm. it, it's just part of my life's mission. It's part of why I'm here. So being in Washington was exhilarating. I remember going to the steps of the Capitol, listening, sitting in on, he on hearings, and feeling like, kind of electrified through my body, so excited and alive. So my day job was not quite so exciting. I was <laughs> I was at the Office of Management and Budget, better better known as OMB. We did a lot of number crunching. I worked on, you know, I was an intern, so I worked on circulars, which was just technical information about procedures, like policies and procedures, not very, you know, 
electrifying. But to be in that environment at such a young age was extraordinary. And I learned so much. So part of what I learned was that there's not a lot of change that any individual can make in Washington. And having been a public policy or political science major at Brown, I learned that on paper. But to see it and experience it was quite interesting because most of the people at OMB had been there for many years. I think my boss had been there for over 20 years. So it was not a political position. She went from you know, administration to administration. Only the very top of the, um, of the agency was a, with political appointees. And so that was one lesson. It was the summer of the crime bill, which you, I'm sure you don't remember because it was 1994, which I think- I was four. <laughs> <laughs> or three. I don't even know if was CNN around that. I don't know, I'm sure you weren't watching it if CNN were around at that point. So, um, so but it was a very controversial um, policy and, and political battle at that point. So it was really interesting being so close to watch it unfold. Um, and Leon Panetta had been the head of OMB, and he was, I believe, rotating off, and Alice Rivlin was coming in. So there was sort of a changing of the guard. Interesting time. Um, shortly thereafter, President Clinton talked about Monica Lewinsky, who was also an intern, but there were a series of different interns. So I was in the executive suite, but I was not in the White House. I was in the um, the building across the street from the White House, which gave me a little bit of distance, which I mm-hmm. guess was you know, fine. (laughs) But he was a very charismatic man. And I did have the opportunity to meet him twice. Um, Just some people have that gravitas, you know, and he certainly had it. And it was extraordinary to to see. So in terms of advice to my younger self, um, I actually think that I did. I did walk out what I needed to walk out, which was that Yes, I was interested. Yes, I was electrified. But my intention was to come to make changes. And what I learned was that that wasn't the place that you could really make the kind of change that I was looking to make. So then I started to search for different other ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we talk about family and marriage? Um, you know, I think one of my favorite things about talking with you and other women this week has been just how real you are. I feel like you're just sort of an open book. And yes, this is about learning about corporate governance and valuations <laughs> and our elevator pitch and, and all of the objective things that we've learned. But it's also about trying to navigate life and figure out how to create balance that's one thing that we've talked and about and um and how to how to make the right choices in your personal life that are going to set you up for success i struggle with this a lot as a woman in my early 30s contemplating starting a family um weighing decisions about whether to move for a job or an opportunity and um, I think I slight myself a lot Um, and ironically the feedback that I've gotten most this week from other women in the program is slow down it will happen but as I've shared with you previously there's this feeling that I can't let my armor down I can't um, just relax because 
the world is not built for women in leadership. And so I have to constantly be in battle if that's what I really want. And I think you see a lot of women dropping out of the race, I'll say, um, probably, so I'll be 33 next month, so probably in the next five to seven year time frame, I might see a lot of my peers step back. Um, and I think I'm already seeing that level of burnout in myself. Um, and I, I feel sometimes at a loss for how to combat that. And so I'm just curious, do you have life's answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can certainly share my perspective. And, and watching you has been interesting, too, because it's reminded me. So after I started my first business, I was awarded um, an honor from Harvard Divinity School. And it was for faith-based leaders in community development. And at that program, I was the youngest of all of the people just like you. And so seeing you and being with you has reminded me of that experience. I was 24, and I think the next oldest person was like 50. So it was it was one of those. Quite the those, delta. Yeah, it was one of those situations. So I understand. Totally understand. So I think what I would say is that balance every day is the key because burnout is when you're giving more than you're getting filled, right, as an equation. And that happens when we, um, we say yes to too much or too many things without self-care up in boundaries, right? I think sometimes in my youth, and this is something I'm still learning. My best friend is a psychologist and she reminds me all the time that if we're not filling our cup every day, it will lead to burnout in whatever industry. And if we're, if we're not setting boundaries that are healthy for ourselves, it will lead to burnout. So more practically, what does that look like? Well, for me, it's always a connection to the divine because I feel like I'm here on earth for a larger purpose. I am someone who is um, open to interfaith um, understanding of that. So whether it's Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, um, or more universal. I do believe that it's that connection to a source that's greater than ourselves, to a work and a life's purpose and mission that's greater to ourselves. So if we have a purpose that we've defined for ourselves and we have a sense of why we're here on this earth, for instance, for you, like you're a healer. So you're, you're attracted to healing. You have this experience with your grandfather that has given you the why. Um, then you, you have the inner strength to always go back to that. If in your daily life, you're not making choices that are healthy for you around boundaries, then all of us, we will burn out. So um, for me, having a daily meditation, making sure that I take time off, I'm not working too many hours a week, um, that I'm able to do things that fill my soul. Like I love my friends 
and my family. I love spending time, um, quality time, things like museums, walks outside in nature. Um, now I work out twice a week, making sure I eat a gluten-free vegan diet. So all, these are all ways to fill our cup and make sure that we keep the balance. Mm -hmm. um, I also believe in teams. So at this stage of, of my life in my 50s, I believe in if there's something that I'm struggling with that I can't get done on my own, my younger self, I would feel inadequate, not strong enough. Maybe I would beat myself up for it, right? Yes. <laughs> now I realize, wait a second, I'm not supposed to know everything <laughs> because no human being is. Part of it is the interconnected nature of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so if there's something that I feel some shame about or feel inadequate about, my best friend who's a psychologist has taught me, that's an indicator that you need help. It's not an indicator of shame or inadequacy. So if you need help, that might look like some kind of team, other people coming beside you. So I have a health coach for, I have a personal trainer, I have other people, sometimes it's a business coach or a life coach. So, so that's one component. Another component is the family life work balance. So my husband, I met in graduate school at the University of Michigan, and he is also a heart-centered person. What we both share is the love of people, the love of children, the, the desire and the intention to do the right thing, to live in integrity and to make the best choices that we can with the information that we have. And that's been a powerful connector and a wonderful life partnership. So we're going into 24 years of marriage. And part of what I've learned is that the spoiler alert of life is that we are all going to have good, bad, happy, sad, and all of those vows that we take when we get married, we will have 100% guaranteed. So the question becomes, how do you deal with that when they arise? And how do we look at our partners? How do we look at ourselves in those moments of crisis? Um, one that I'm reminded of is when my husband and I got married, we um, had a very nice kind of even-tempered marriage for the first nine years. I'll circle back to children. But after nine years, we had our first real existential crisis, which was that his mom was dying in the hospital and she had been in the Midwest. And when we had kids at the time, so I stayed back and, and my husband went out to the Midwest when at that point we were living in New York City. So he made the trip and his family called me saying that he had been sleeping on the floor of the conference room and had not gone to a hotel and was just beside himself with worry and anxiety that his mom was dying. So I got my family to take care of the kids. I went out to, to Minnesota and I remember picking him up off the floor of the hospital conference room, literally, and booking a hotel, like putting him in the shower, because it had been like days since he had even showered, and 
And he got into the bed. I had ordered room service, and he was fast asleep. And I remember as she went through the process of death, and she went through a very, I found it beautiful um, process that we went through. There were some spectacular nurses and healthcare providers that helped us through that process, including a speech language pathologist who got a communication board because she was intubated at the time Mm -hmm. to help us understand her last wishes. We had the nurses on the cancer floor who were telling us the stages of death and it was just very comforting to have their guidance. But regarding my husband, um, it was the first time that I really saw the in sickness and in health in good times and bad times part of the marriage. And it was hard. I was there, I showed up, right? I think that's the first thing, to have a partner who's gonna show up for you. Not that you're gonna have all the answers, but someone who's gonna be there for you when you need them. Um, So I was able to do that, and Rodney has shown up for me countless times in my life. And so that's, I think, the first thing that we share Um, But I do think that, you know, it it changed him. I don't think he's been the same since. And and so we'll all go through changes in metamorphosis, uh, metamorphoses of varying kinds throughout life. And to have a partner who you're committed to staying with, um, that you feel like is worthy of that, who's going to ride the waves of life with you, to be there with you by your side, to support you in whatever ways you can, I think is one of the most important qualities. So um, so after we, we've had three beautiful girls and it's been extraordinary. It's been an extraordinary journey. My husband was, was trained as a teacher when we were at the University of Michigan. I was getting my master's in policy. He was getting his master's in education. When he graduated, He said, you know, I love teaching, but there's a lot of politics that goes into school systems. And I'm not sure if I'm completely comfortable with that. And he said, you know, I don't feel called to that. And so I had taken all these business classes and was just starting my entrepreneurship. So I said, I know the answer to that question. (laughs) You should take a Myers-Briggs personality test and tell me, what are you most passionate about? What makes you feel most alive? So it's so funny to hear him recount this story because he said, you know, I was, you know, my work study was computer help desk and I really love computers. And I'm like, great, that's wonderful. Let's go and, and pursue jobs with computers. Well, long story short, he ended up going into this small, unknown, unheard of, because we barely, we didn't have smartphones and we barely had personal computers area called e-commerce and that was 27 (laughs) years ago and nobody had even heard of like 1-800-Flowers, Eddie Bauer, nobody had heard of like a package showing up at your house. Amazon. Exactly, (laughs) Amazon didn't exist. So he goes into this area and so long story short, his career has ascended and after COVID he got a lot of calls to, from various people around the world to come work for them, and he took a job at Shopify in Canada. But what that happened also, the flip side of that, was that that meant that most of the care for our children would be me for a lot of those years. Um, he's a wonderful and very involved father, and the girls adore him. Um, and also, 
the primary caregiver um, was me. And so in some ways I wanted to go off and be the CEO of Fortune 500 at that point in my life, but wasn't able to. And so what was great about it was that I was still able to use my entrepreneurship skills in business development, strategic development. Also, as the children grew up on their PTAs, mm-hmm. nonprofit organizations, I stayed with Brown for 30 years. I've been with alumni relations. I've really never left since my fifth year reunion. I've sat on the board of alumni relations, um, alumni board at Brown twice, and then a, a local board. So I was still able to fulfill my heart's desires, yet my primary focus was the children. Mm -hmm. So now that my children have graduated, my oldest is graduating from college, my second born is going to college, and my third born is on track to graduate two years, uh, one year early from high school in two years. You're like, go! (laughs) It's a new season. Mama's gotta get on a board. (laughs) (laughs) Mama needs a board. (laughs) So it's a really exciting season. And so that's what I would say to you as a young woman, that. If you have a partner who supports you by showing up for you, nobody's perfect. There are always going to be pitfalls. But if you feel like they really show up and they're willing to move with you and change with you, then it is a sense of timing. Things roll out in the right time to not feel like you have to save the world, not feel like you're the only one. If you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Because the truth is, there is a divinity to timing. And that as you take care of yourself and you keep the right balance, things will roll out in the right time. And so there's an element of patience and faith that guides that process. Yeah, as you're talking about this, a lot of what we learned this week is actually coming to mind, which I find ironic. Um, and a little comical at the same time because I feel this way in my executive MBA program a lot of the time too that I'm actually learning more about life than I'm learning about business Um, (laughs) and the idea of having systems in place and how important that is to uh, corporate governance and boards and um, I think having that in place for yourself is exactly what you're speaking to in terms of the every single day and setting up systems um, for myself that work is is really something that I'm taking away from this week and um, you know almost like having a checklist for myself of like yeah exactly like you said this is my regimen and this is what I do every day and the book that I sent you we should all be millionaires I just finished that this morning on my way here and the final chapter she has Uh, It's seven daily habits that she recommends, but the two that I really took from that one was delegating something daily. And I think that's if you included work and you're a a woman in business, that's you can't do that at work, right? Because you're delegating all day, every day. It's in your personal life, delegating at least one thing a day and setting or reinforcing a boundary at least once a day. 
Um, so for the past two days, I have delegated something. The very first thing that I did was I hired someone who's coming to my house tomorrow to get a quote for cleaning my Good house. Good for you, Ashley. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. And it's like, why was that so, like, it feels cheesy to even say, like, why was that so hard to do? Um but it, it is, and there is a sense of shame, and going back to what you said, shame just means that I need help. Yes. But there is, because there's there's a lifetime of reinforcement that I should be doing everything myself, or bootstrapping, or, and especially as a woman, I should be able to keep my you know, 2,000 plus square foot house clean and um, do all of this other crazy stuff that I'm doing. And you're like, yeah, okay, good luck with that. (laughs) Um, But the boundary setting and reinforcing, I still like haven't even been able to do the first two days, even with it being top of mind. So um, I think those are two, two things that I just wanted to share as well for anyone who's listening. So in closing, and as we're sitting here in the beautiful Yale School of Management and just reflecting on this past week, I think some of my followers and listeners will be wondering, is executive education worth it? And was this your first executive education course? You mentioned the Harvard Divinity. I have had several certificate courses, but this is my first in-person executive ed. Okay. Um, So, yeah, my first executive ed experience, I think um, I went in a little naively thinking that this was just for women who wanted to be on any board. Like, I just wanted to learn Boards 101. (laughs) Uh, Let's start with the nonprofits. And, um, you know, most of the women here were looking to be on a publicly (laughs) traded company's board. So quite the the range of experience. Um, I feel wholeheartedly that it has been worth it for me in terms of networking, personal growth, um, and and just learning the basics, like I mentioned, about boards and corporate governance. So I'm curious what your key takeaways are and if you think it's worth it and if you would recommend it as an investment to other women who and men who may be listening. So the Yale program on boards has been extraordinary. It's been extremely well organized and they did an excellent job of attracting peers including yourself (laughs) for all of the high-powered women both in the c-suite and in various leader leadership positions in their individual lives but also in whatever sphere of influence they have and you're certainly a leader in your sphere of influence so the networking component of it has been extraordinary both for personal connections that you might find opportunities, but even more so for the support that we can find from one another. Like you said, the words of affirmation and all of the love language ways that we can communicate that we're not alone Mm -hmm. and that there are people we can call for help. Mm -hmm. There are people that we can call for support and there are people who will walk by our side who who have similar interests. So from that standpoint, it's been extraordinary. Jeff Sonnenfeld, um, the founder of the program, has been extraordinary to watch his ability to connect to people and therefore to connect people Mm -hmm. together 
is just one of a kind. I've never yeah. seen a human being be able to do that so masterfully. Um, the way that he brought the CEO, Yale CEO Summit together and the more than 200 CEOs. Um, and then to have it featured on CNN this morning or something, like to literally be watching that in class today. I'm like, what is life right now? I am involved in this. Like, how did I get in this room? Exactly. That's right. And that's how a lot of us felt on Monday at the CEO Summit, being on a Zoom with Steven Spielberg and, you know, Bob Iger from Disney and, you know, the CEO of all kinds of Fortune 500s. I, Panera stands out to me for what he was saying about artificial inter- intelligence, as well as eBay. So it was it was just an extraordinary experience. So Jeff being able to bring those people together in the same room, us having an opportunity to be in those spaces. Later, Faye Waddleton and some of the other pioneering women who have been on boards to hear from them and learn from them, glean from them, has basically cut down our um, learning curve tremendously. So there are pitfalls and mistakes that we will never make Mm -hmm. because they told us about how to avoid them. And that's invaluable. The staff here has been extraordinary Mm -hmm. at the School of Management. The way that they coordinated all of the details from all of the learning to the hotel to the dinners. Um, And they were so sensitive because as a gluten-free vegan person, it's sometimes so hard for me to find food. But Yale having enormous, incredible resources, the chefs prepared food for everyone that was gluten-free vegan. And and I actually didn't get a lot of side eyes like, oh, great, we're having asparagus and beans and lentils because of you, Kelly. Thanks. Delicious. (laughs) It it. We all benefited, I think, from, um, from it. So those kinds of details were extraordinary. But I think the connections that we made, both professionally and personally, Um, and the information that we gleaned Mm -hmm. absolutely made it worth it. So for the Yale School of Management Executive Education, I could not recommend it more highly. Yeah, likewise. I I think to just wrap us up, one of my biggest takeaways that I'm going to continue mulling over and having conversations about, so with all of the fraud and waste and abuse that we learned about this week um, in terms of corporations and and the history of that and the role of the board to mitigate that and sort of keep things in line, I thought to myself several times, especially with what we were also learning about what happens when you have more women on the board, there's less of that. I kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like when is a company going to decide to just trial out an all-female board, and it'll be the best thing ever, and the company will be super profitable, and um, and then every board will just be predominantly women. The problem with that that I'm ruminating on is some recent articles that I've read about female CEOs only being brought in. I know I'm jumping from boards to CEOs, but um, same same initiatives and in, in getting more women in the room that they're being brought in as saviors to clean up the mess, to fix the problems. And I struggle with that because I, I want to weigh in and and I'll if that's what it is, honestly, if someone gave me a C-suite opportunity right now, regardless of whether it was cleaning something up or not, I would probably take it because I, I want that. 
and um, I'm just grappling with that myself um, and and I think some of the wisdom that I've gleaned from the women in the room who have a lot more experience than myself and Jeff and the other speakers um, is something that I will keep in the back of my mind that I think I wouldn't have even thought of at this point in the game had I not done this program. I couldn't agree more. And I think the cautionary tales that Jeff left us with about not taking every opportunity that comes to you, but making sure it's one that's resonant with your values and that you feel is gonna be a positive experience, a positive relational experience Mm -hmm. with the other people who share similar values, Mm -hmm. I think is one of the most powerful takeaways from the week. Yeah, well, thank you. (laughs) This has been amazing and really a great way to end the week. So I really appreciate you doing this. It has been such a joy for me to be with you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. And thank you for being a beacon for young women, powerful women who are starting out and really seeking to have that excellence and diligence. And I know that you already are all of those things. But even as the years progress, you are extraordinary. And I can't wait to watch your trajectory. Thank you.